Welcome to the American Citizens Abroad TaxCast. I'm Michelle, and today Charles Bruce, Chairman of American Citizens Abroad Global Foundation and Legal Counsel for American Citizens Abroad, will be chatting with Marie Sapiri, Contributing Editor for Tax Notes, where she writes about federal taxation. She recently wrote the article, How Senate Rules and Precedents Shape Tax Law on Reconciliation. ACA is interested in reconciliation because it's key to RBT, and it's why ACA is working on revenue numbers with the District Economic Group. To read Marie's article, you can find it on the ACA site, and we've included a link to it in our show notes. Now let's get into it. Welcome, Marie and Charles. Thank you. Good to be here, and thank you, Marie, for doing this. Let's jump into this. Marie, can you get us started on what reconciliation is and maybe start introducing the various elements? And at some point, I think you're going to get around to the famous bird rule. Can you get us started on this? I'd be happy to. So to understand what reconciliation is, we need to back up a little bit to the annual budget. The budget is where Congress establishes its fiscal priorities for the next year and for subsequent years. Congress is required by the Congressional Budget Act of 1974 to adopt a budget resolution each year. Reconciliation is the optional process through which Congress enacts new legislation or changes existing laws to align the tax, direct spending, and debt limit laws with the new priorities. It's a process that was created by the Congressional Budget Act that enables Congress to put its annual budget resolution into action more quickly than the regular process for enacting laws. What we're reconciling here is the existing law with the new priorities. That's why it's called reconciliation. The trade-off for that efficiency is that it comes with additional constraints. The reason the reconciliation is of such major interest now is that only 51 votes are needed to pass a reconciliation bill in the Senate. But under the regular Senate order, a bill needs 60 votes in order to pass because it has to have a cloture vote first. And that's where the 60 votes come in. Under regular order, you only need a majority to pass the bill, but you need to have a cloture vote first. The reconciliation process effectively prevents a filibuster. So the lower threshold for the required votes is attractive to the majority party when that party has a slim majority. And that's especially applicable today because of the current Senate makeup, which exactly fits that slim majority scenario. As a reminder, Republicans hold 50 seats, Democrats hold 48. There are two independents who caucus with the Democrats. So we've got an even split. And when there's a 50-50 split, the vice president casts the tie-breaking vote, which today gets the Democrats to the simple majority they need without any Republican votes. And that's only as long as they're moving a reconciliation bill. So to turn to the basics of the budget process, it's essentially a three-step process, and we'll go through the three steps in turn so you can see where specific legislation comes into play. The first step is passing a budget resolution. This is a high-level agreement that provides the framework for the whole budget process by laying out the broad goals and top-line spending and revenue amounts, and divides all of that up by area of government activity, like defense, education, health, energy, housing, and so on. That has to cover five years of revenue and spending, but recently the budget window is 10 years. This stage is over for the current budget process. As of August 24th, we have a resolution that has passed both the House and Senate. The second step is implementing the reconciliation instructions. The budget resolution includes directives to the committees and the House and the Senate. Once they get those instructions, the committees write the legislation that will be included in the reconciliation bill. 
the Ways and Means Committee and the Senate Finance Committee are where the tax law changes will largely be handled. This year, the deadline for the committees is September 15th, but that's not a completely hard deadline. Sometimes the committees have been known to extend beyond their deadlines. As for the specific instructions to the tax writing committees, the Senate Finance Committee is instructed to report changes in laws within its jurisdiction, so tax laws, that reduce the deficit by at least $1 billion over the next 10 years. And the Ways and Means Committee in the House has the same instruction. Other committees get to spend money, but the tax writers are charged with finding the spending offsets. So they'll also be looking for the $3.5 trillion in offsets. And we're going to add to the show notes a copy of the actual concurrent budget resolution. It's not easy reading, but the figures are really startling. Back to you, Marie. Sure. So the third step of the budget process is combining everything. The budget committees in the House and the Senate put all the submissions from their committees together and decide whether to report the whole bill to the full chamber. The budget committees at this point don't get to make substantive changes or amendments, but they do get cost estimates at this point to make sure that the reconciliation directives have been complied with. This is the stage at which the Senate Budget Committee considers whether there might be any bird rule violations, which we'll discuss more in a moment. After the budget committees have reported the combined legislation, each chamber considers its version of the bill. Then there's a process for resolving differences between the House and Senate versions. And finally, it's enacted into law. Sounds relatively simple, not really, but it is useful to understand the step-by-step. It's also interesting to note that when running numbers, estimates, they come into play in several places. And one of them right here which you just mentioned is estimates in order to see what the scope of and what the effects are of the various rules, including this bird rule, which you're going to get to in, in a moment. There are lots of people running lots of numbers for various reasons. So take us on with the other parts, Marie. That's right. There are a lot of revenue estimates that go into this process. So we just had the high-level overview, and now we need to go back to look at the piece of the process that happens in the Senate that I mentioned earlier, the application of what's called the Byrd Rule. This is a rule that's named for Senator Robert Byrd, and the goal is to keep the budget bill on topic by weeding out the legislative items that Congress members like to put in that aren't related to spending or taxes. The way that the Byrd Rule does this is through prohibiting the inclusion of what's called extraneous matter in reconciliation legislation. We should also note here that this is a non-self-enforcing rule, which means that a senator has to raise a point of order at the right time to invoke it. If that point of order is sustained, the extraneous material is deemed stricken from the bill and it can't be offered as an amendment from the floor. There are six ways a provision in a reconciliation bill can run afoul of the no extraneous matter rule. The first requirement is that the provision has to have a budgetary effect. A provision is extraneous if it does not produce a change in outlays or revenues. However, also under the statute, an exact offset in a provision does not become extraneous under this first point. If the outlay or revenue changes are precisely matched so that a decrease is paired with an equal increase, that's okay under this part of the definition. Then the Byrd Rule has two requirements that are meant to keep the committees in line and on task. These rules tell us that a provision is extraneous if it produces an outlay increase or a revenue decrease 
if the net effect of the provisions from the committee is that the committee doesn't achieve its reconciliation instructions. So that's the point where the budget resolution and their top line spending amounts matter come into play. And a provision is also extraneous if it isn't in the jurisdiction of the committee with jurisdiction over the title or provision in question. For example, the tax laws are in Title 26 of the United States Code, so the committee that wants to change Title 26 has to have jurisdiction over that title. The fourth rule is one of the more important for tax measures, and that's the requirement that a provision must not produce changes in outlays or revenues that are merely incidental to the non-budgetary components of the provision. Whether the change in revenues is merely incidental is an area of a fair amount of contention, but the effect of this provision is at least in part to prevent provisions that are essentially regulations from being converted into nominal tax provisions. The fifth prohibition in the Bird Rule is that a provision can't increase net outlays or decrease revenues in fiscal years after the fiscal years covered by the Reconciliation Bill where the increases in outlays or decreases in revenues are greater than outlay reductions or revenue increases resulting from other provisions in the title that year. This is the out-year effects prohibition. The idea is that a measure must not increase the deficit outside of the budget window, and that's usually 10 years at this point. This is the reason why there's so many sunset provisions in the tax rules that are made through the budget process because they have to have an end date or else they typically do have an effect on the deficit outside the budget window. And the final requirement, which isn't a problem generally for tax law changes, is that the provision can't recommend changes in Social Security. For the sake of completeness, I should note that there are also very limited exceptions to the prohibition against extraneous material, and those apply to a provision that originates in the Senate. But in order for the exception to apply, both the chair and ranking minority member of the Budget Committee and the committee with jurisdiction over the provision have to make specific certifications about the effect of the provision. That, as you might imagine, requires a high level of cooperation, and that's undoubtedly intentional because the exception allows what amounts to an override of the Congressional Budget Office's scores. In the current political context, and probably in many others that you can imagine, that degree of agreement by four legislators, two each from opposite parties, might be difficult to achieve. So that exception doesn't come into play all that often. Finally, it's possible for the Senate to waive the Byrd Rule, but that requires 60 votes in the Senate, which again is unlikely to happen in the context of a reconciliation bill that is going to pass with 51 votes. Thank you for that uh, review of all the elements. Let me bring you back just to emphasize one element is that the materiality or whatever the term for that rule is can be avoided if you're going to lose revenue in a set of provisions. If at the same time you have a revenue pickup which offsets it, you can clean up the problem. And I think that's a little tricky, but I think that's one of the reasons why when working on provisions under reconciliation, there's a compulsion. If you're going to lose revenue, you need to look to the left and the right to try to pick up offsetting a revenue. It can be a harsh rule and it puts people in an uncomfortable position. Any comment on that quirky set of rules? The general rule is that the provisions need to have a budgetary effect. Once you have a provision that has a budgetary effect and doesn't hit one of the other extraneous matter definitions, then you should survive the bird rule. Thank you for that. Let's push on now. Let's turn to the subject of reconciliation in the context of what's going on now. 
with the Biden budget. I think you've said something about this, where we stand in the process. We have the concurrent resolution, and now, putting it simply, the committees have been given their assignments. So what else is going on now with reconciliation in the context of the Biden budget? Anything come to mind? While a lot remains to be seen as to how this process plays out in the reconciliation bill, the committees currently have their marching orders in the budget resolution, and they have their September 15th deadline to write legislation for the reconciliation bill. So that means we'll know more about the specifics relatively soon. In the next few weeks, this is when markups will happen of the proposed legislation from the committees. What we do know is that the resolution provides the instructions for the $3.5 trillion budget, and the tax writing committees are going to be looking quite seriously for offsets for that amount and their deficit reduction requirements too. There are some specific tax measures identified in the budget resolution. Most of these will be familiar from the American Families Plan. These include not raising taxes on people who have incomes under $400,000, the step up in basis for privately held businesses and farms. There's a financial account reporting provision. There are energy policies dealing with taxes. There's means testing for electric vehicle tax credits and various other provisions as well that are likely to be included. Safe to say, simply put, we are very much in the thick of it right now. Is that correct? (laughs) That's true. And the one thing to remember is that while I said that the bird rule really comes into effect with the Senate Budget Committee, it is in effect playing in the background throughout the entire process of writing legislation for the budget bill. It just comes to the forefront when the Senate is considering the bill. The Senate Budget Committee considers whether there are any violations of the Byrd Rule, and they make a list of provisions that are considered to be extraneous, but that list isn't necessarily complete, and it isn't the final determination. That leads to the question of who makes the final determination, and this is where we meet an official who generally isn't all that well-known outside of Capitol Hill, and that's the Senate parliamentarian. I think everybody will be interested in hearing a little bit about the human element. Who is this person? Can you characterize who the person is now? And oddly enough, where do they sit? Tell us something about that. Briefly, the parliamentarian's job is to be the conservator of the procedural rules and precedents of the Senate, of which there are many. The current Senate parliamentarian is Elizabeth McDonough. She works on Capitol Hill. It's a nonpartisan office. There's no term limit. And the office currently has one lead parliamentarian, and there are a few assistants as well. The parliamentarian is critical to the Byrd Rule because she runs the show when there's a dispute over whether a provision might violate the Byrd Rule. I've spoken with former Senate staff members who've participated in this vetting process, and they've said that the parliamentarian's deliberations over whether a provision violates the Byrd Rule are extensive. Typically, fairly early on in the budget process, the Senate staff will take their proposed bill text to the parliamentarians to start the process. And during that process, they look at the policies in the bill, the revenue estimates, and any precedents from earlier reconciliation bills to determine what might violate the Byrd Rule. During this process, the parliamentarians meet with both the Democrat and Republican Senate staffers to get their positions. And these deliberations are not open to the public. So we usually only get a general announcement that a bird rule violation exists or doesn't. And that tends to come from senators. And the grounds for the ruling aren't usually disclosed. 
So the net result is that we don't always know how a potential violation will be treated. That early work is really, if I can sort of characterize it in my own mind, is really meant to smoke out any problems, to uh, listen to the parties, and also to help them if there's a problem, to help them resolve it so that when it goes forward, there's not some sort of mess on the floor of the Senate and the resolution is, as we used to say, totally wired in advance. Is that a good picture? I think that's right. The process is designed to help figure out how the legislation should be drafted in order to comply with the requirements of the budget process. I am interested, maybe other people will be interested in the parliamentarian and these human beings that do this work. And in your article, I noted that there have been a limited number of parliamentarians in recent history. They tend to get the job and stay in place for a while. I noted that two of the recent parliamentarians were actually removed. And then what really caught my eye was that these individuals were later reinstated. you have any point about that? The parliamentarian is hired by the majority leadership, and they can also be terminated by the party that's in control. They tend to keep their office regardless of who's in power. But as you mentioned, two were fired and then rehired. I think part of the reason for that was that the amount of knowledge that the people who are in the parliamentarian's office have is significant. They're there to keep the Senate running. They're the repository of all the rules and procedures that keep the Senate going. So that's extremely specialized knowledge. Moving people in and out is something that I think is relatively rare. I did work the Senate Finance Committee a long time ago, and I noted that there are members who are known to be very, very intellectual about this subject, not just because they enjoy it, but because they know that it's really, really useful to know these rules. And um, Senator Robert Byrd was a leading example of that. And in fact, I believe he helped edit one of the manuals or one of the guidebooks on the Senate rules, which is noteworthy. Let's turn now to focusing on the importance of reconciliation for residence-based taxation and proposals that people would like to put forward. Reconciliation wouldn't be relevant at all to RBT if RBT was proceeding as a standalone bill and not part of a big tax bill. But this is really not going to happen. I don't think we need to digress on that. In the past, groups like ACA have always said they would like to see a big tax bill come along because RBT needs to be attached to something. Well, we don't have to worry about that. There is going to be a big tax bill. In fact, there'll probably be several tax bills. Looking at the importance of reconciliation for RBT, can you just comment on that a bit? So reconciliation, as we've been discussing, is strictly a budget process. So none of the rules we just discussed would apply to standalone bills. The Senate parliamentarian doesn't even typically look at the standalone bills. That process only happens in the context when the bird rule applies, which is in the reconciliation process. All the standalone bills, of course, follow the regular process for bills becoming laws with the 60 vote threshold in the Senate for ending debate on a measure and getting to a vote. There does only need to be a simple majority to pass the regular order bill, but without the 60 votes to end debate, the substantive vote doesn't happen. The political climate matters to what gets passed and when. Let's grind a little further into details here. Let me ask you, would RBT have to be revenue neutral or pick up revenue in order to go ahead in this context? I think you've actually touched upon the answer, and that is there are large elements of the politics in that decision. 
I think that's right. I think the thing to keep in mind here is that the provisions that have a budgetary effect do generally survive the bird rule, but whether they survive the political process is a totally different question. Congress is always looking for spending offsets and ways to reduce the deficit. So a provision that generates revenue within the budget window or otherwise could be pretty attractive to legislators. And a provision that's revenue neutral might stand a better chance than one that legislators need to find other revenue to pay for. Would RBT be looked at really provision by provision because there's several parts to it? Or would it be looked at as a whole? What do you think? The evaluation under the reconciliation process is provision by provision. So an example of this is the Berea College episode in 2017. In the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, there was a provision to apply a new excise tax on investment income of large endowments at private universities with at least 500 students. That would have applied to Berea, which is a small liberal arts school in Kentucky whose mission is to educate students with limited financial means. And they promise that none of their students will pay tuition their income comes from its endowment, which funds nearly three quarters of its operating costs. So the investment income tax would have really hurt Berea. So the Senate added a requirement that the 500 student threshold be 500 tuition paying students. That addition did not survive the Bird Rule. However, Berea got relief from Congress from the investment income tax the following year. It can be pretty surgical, the, the removal of provisions. Interesting. And really brings you back to if you're going to lose some revenue, you can look around and try to come up with something to plug the hole. How might compliance rules that are embedded within the RBT set of provisions, how might those compliance rules be viewed? Provisions that don't have a budgetary effect are going to run afoul of the prohibition on extraneous materials. And we have the example of the information reporting in the Opportunity Zones program. That was also part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. This was a situation that ended up being more like self-censorship on the part of the legislators. The information reporting provisions were stripped out before the statutory changes were put into the bill because they knew that they would have run into the bird rule problems. That's what I was talking about when I said it's sort of playing in the background the whole time. Everybody on the Hill is familiar with the requirements. So sometimes things get cut before there's an actual point of order raised. Who determines the numbers that is whether something's revenue neutral or not. Who does this numbering of things? That's the Congressional Budget Office and the Joint Committee on Taxation. They both produce revenue estimates. Stepping back, what is the role of the Budget Committee in all of this? And you touched upon the need for certifications and some certifications that really require participation from the minority side as well. Can you just make that point for us? The Budget Committee's role in the budget process is that they assemble the final legislation and they put together the pieces that the various committees with jurisdiction over various spending pieces and the tax pieces, they put it all together, then they get to vote on that bill, whether to send it to the full chamber. The Senate Budget Committee is also going to take a closer look at whether there's a prospective bird rule violation. Obviously, there's very little opportunity for playing games with the numbers because so many people are looking over everybody else's shoulder. There's really not much opportunity for game playing or ambiguity. Everything gets closely examined. Marie, before we go away today, 
I want to revisit just briefly uh, the compliance rules and how some of those will not be treated as substantial and some of them will be. It seems to me that in tax legislation, it's not unusual for serious provisions to deal with compliance, and those compliance rules produce revenue, and that revenue which is produced is worked into the reconciliation equation. I hope that makes sense. Can you say something about useful compliance rules and non-useful compliance rules? So this goes to the fourth piece of the bird rule, that a provision must not produce changes in outlays or revenues that are merely incidental to the non-budgetary components of the provision. So what is merely incidental, like I said, is fairly contentious and fairly fact-specific too. One of the things that's going to go into whether it's merely incidental or not, in all likelihood, the revenue score would be a fairly important piece of deciding whether it's merely incidental or not. So a compliance rule that generated revenue has the potential under that rule to, to comply. Uh, I do very much recommend the people reading your uh, article. I commend you. That's really a terrific article. As an aside, how long did it take you to write and research that article? In researching that article, it took a few weeks. I contacted a few former staff members in the Senate to discuss what the process looked like from the inside as well because there's not a lot of information that comes out of the Senate parliamentarian's office. It is, to use the cliche, it is a bit opaque by design. Anyway, highly recommend the article. Thank you for the article. Thank you very, very much for doing this. Thank you, Marie and Charles, for the very interesting chat. We'd like to add that there are many resources through tax notes that are available without a subscription, and we encourage our listeners to check it out. The American Citizens Abroad Tax Cast is edited and produced by me, Michelle, and is a product of American Citizens Abroad. You can get in touch with us at podcastsatamericansabroad.org. Remember, give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts so other Americans living abroad can find us.